This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We turn together to the scriptures as it is found in Paul's epistle to the Romans. The book of Romans has been, of course, a book in which we have explored together many of the truths of the scriptures. We're going to read the last part of it in connection with the subject of which we speak tonight. And so let's begin with verse 28 and read to the end of the chapter. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far we read the scriptures. Subject of our discussion tonight is, as you know from your program sheets, the victorious Christian life. I can't think of a subject I would rather speak on than that. The victorious 
Christian life. There's a ring to it, a ring of gladness, a ring of joy. The bell seems to toll in those words announcing victory, complete victory for God's people. And so it is with great pleasure that I address you, I address myself to you tonight under that theme. I want you to notice with the theme that the speeches, the victorious Christian life by which the thing means, as I understand it, not the victory that shall be the life of the people of God when finally they are in heaven, although that's part of it, of course. But as I understand the theme, as it, the subject as it was assigned me, it seemed to me that the idea was to put the emphasis on the victorious Christian life now in the world as we make our pilgrimage and wend our way to our everlasting destination, the house of our Father. We must not conceive of the whole concept of sanctification, especially as we talked about it last night, as if the battle in which the Christian engages and the battlefield which is in his own flesh is a battle that is, so to speak, up for grabs, that the victory of one or the other is not yet known. We mustn't conceive of sanctification that way. We mustn't even conceive of it as if while we walk in the world, and while we are beset by sin, and while we struggle daily with the enemy of sin, especially as it is in our own flesh, that the outcome is uncertain. We mustn't take that. When my theme speaks of the certain victory of the Christian or the victorious life of the Christian, I want to emphasize that's talking about the life we now live. It's victorious. It is. No question about it. It's so victorious that in the midst of our struggle and in the midst of our sometimes deep sorrow and in the midst of our fears sometimes when we seem to be losing nevertheless the scripture says you must walk as a sanctified child of God in the world certain of the victory. What more joyful and wonderful subject could a man speak on than that? 
And it seems to me that the weight of it is so great and the wonder of it is so splendid that anything I say tonight is almost a mumbling, a stumbling around, a groping for something so wonderful in this dark world and in our difficult lives that one can hardly describe. We are victorious. We are in our battle. And because we are victorious in this life in our battle, <coughs> we have additional incentive to fight. We can't be defeated. The enemy will never win. We'll never be overcome. Isn't that incentive to fight? Isn't that incentive to fight with might and main against all our enemies, even as they're found in our own flesh? You can't lose. It's impossible. And so the joy and blessedness of this part of the Holy Gospel ought to be great incentive for us to seek eagerly to fulfill our calling. I remember talking once to a lady who was converted from what I can only say is Arminian dispensational Baptistic doctrine. And when she was converted to the Reformed faith and heard for the first time a sermon on the Reformed faith, God in his providence made that sermon the preservation of the saints. And she wept almost the whole service. It was exactly what she had to hear. And I asked her why later, and she said, well, I'll tell you, I attended more revivals than I can count. I accepted Christ in my life at least ten times. I was baptized three times, and I never had any peace, and it was the same thing over and over and over again. That, she said, was a hopeless, despairingly hopeless life. I can understand that. Then came the gospel, the preservation of the saints. And she wept. It was almost more than she could bear. That's the subject we have tonight. The victory of the people of God is absolutely certain, beloved, not because the believer himself is such a skilled fighter, not because the armies on the side of those who confess Christ are greater than the enemy which they confront. It is exactly the opposite. I don't know how many devils there are. 
I know Satan is a fallen angel, the most powerful probably of all the angels in the angelic world, the leader of uncountable hosts of black minions that do his bidding, who have in every instance of power greater than the whole church put together in itself and by its own strength. I know that the world constitutes far and away the majority of the population of the globe, that the church, as Isaiah says, is a hut in a garden of cucumbers, a besieged city, a very small remnant. And if the Lord of hosts had not left us a very small remnant, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. I know that. I know too, and I know beyond all contradiction, that when I have to fight the battle on the battlefield of my own sinful flesh, I'm totally unable to fight in any successful way. The guarantee of victory does not lie in the strength of the church or in the individual believer not in any respect. The victory is certain, and we must understand that not only as an abstract point of theology, but as a doctrine that is totally precious to us. Christ has gained the victory for us. It's almost like Christ in the depths of hell when he bore our sins and endured the wrath of God, completely conquered Satan, and that it is for the church to do what is sometimes called in military terms the mopping up. The victory is won. Nothing more has to be done to ensure victory. The victory was in the cross. We are on earth as soldiers that march under the banner of Christ to mop up. And even that we do by Christ's strength. The certainty of our victory in Christ is because he became sin for us, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And because he became sin for us, he paid for all our sins and earned for us the victory. There are, you know, two aspects to the cross of Christ, as I said last night, I think. He not only paid for all our sins and freed us from the guilt and pollution of sin, but he earned for us everlasting salvation. And when he gives us the benefits of his cross through the operation of the Spirit, he makes us much 
much more glorious creatures than Adam could ever have been. He doesn't bring us back to paradise at first. He doesn't make us as Adam was in paradise before he filled, before he fell. He raises us to a much, much greater level, to the level that is the image of God in Jesus Christ, a position higher than the angels, prophets and priests and kings, not only in the earthly creation, but in the redeemed heavens and in the new earth, when heaven and earth are become one. He gives us a knowledge which is unsurpassing and was not even available to Adam. He gives us a glory that Adam could never have known. Never in all his life in paradise, even if he had not fallen. He merited that on the cross. But the victory, the victory of Christ is what I would call almost a two-pronged victory. A victory that is so wonderful and so great that one who understands it even a bit can hardly take it in. Paul alludes to that briefly in Romans 8. He not only gains the victory over sin and death for us and earns for us a place in the new heavens and the new earth where we are his body, but his victory over the enemy is so complete, mind you, and so total, now, while we are in the world, and while we, while we fight against that enemy, that even the enemy serves his purpose to save us. Can you imagine that? It's as if the battle is arrayed, is set in array. On one side, the world and the devil and our wicked flesh, and on this side, Christ and his people. But Christ, who is the captain of our salvation and who enables us to fight, has a direct line to headquarters in the enemy's camp, where he, by his sovereign power, so directs all the battle, all the movements of the troops, all the battles in which the enemy engages. He's doing the directing. He's putting the battalions in order. He's sending the enemy where he wants them to send. And while they, in their rebellion against God, think that they are fighting against God, Christ is using them to give us the victory. What can guarantee the victory more than that? Read Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us cast their bonds from us. What's God's reaction to that warfare in which the wicked engage? He laughs. He laughs. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. It's almost as if 
jokes on them. And yet, I can't help but shiver whenever I read Psalm 2. God laughs. God laughs at the wicked. In all their might, in all their fury, in all their hatred of God, in all their warfare against the church, in all their battles against you and against me and God's people, God sees it all and laughs. Why? I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. That's why. I have sworn the decree. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And Paul, when he preaches to the church in Antioch of Asia Minor, quotes that very passage as proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's when God said to Christ, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That is in contrast with the awful abandonment and horror and wrath of the cross. Thou art my son. I have set him upon the holy hill of Zion. And his dominion is so great and so complete and so totally universal that in all the striving of the devil and his hosts and all the striving of the wicked world to destroy the cause of Christ, they're not only Christ's enemies in their hatred for him, but they're doing what he wants them to do and what is necessary to be done that the church may have the victory with him. If that's the case, if all our enemies are so much under the control of Christ that they can't do a thing without his will, what do we have to worry about with regard to the battle? There is a passage in Revelation 12 which describes the battle between Satan and Christ in graphic terms. And in that chapter, after the baby that was born from the woman was snatched up into heaven, that, Roman, that Revelation 12 tells us that was the ascension of Christ. And the people of God in heaven rejoiced because Satan was cast out. He could go to heaven before that, you know, when Christ was not there yet. But he was cast out. And then you read this, that when Satan saw that he was cast out of heaven, what did he do? Say, I'm going to give up? I might just as well. He knows, he knows that he's in the hands of Christ. He does, he knows that. And if he doesn't, then uh, we better tell him right now. You can't do anything, the devil. You can't. Not unless Christ permits you to do it. That was the case when Christ cast the demons out of the demoniacs in Gadarene. 
were helpless before Christ and they pleaded with him. May we go into the pits? Will you let us go into the pits? They were helpless. They knew it. The devil knows it. The devil knows the battle's won. The devil knows he's defeated. What does he do? He turns against the church in fury, in increased hatred, to try to destroy it. And by the way, there is their remarkable illustration of how depraved, how utterly depraved, man apart from grace is. He knows he's wrong. He knows he's going to hell. He knows that everything he attempts to do will come to nothing. He knows it. And the result of knowing it is that his fury increases and his hatred of the cause of Christ becomes greater. And his efforts to destroy Christ are increased. But Christ reigns. And he reigns over all the powers of darkness. And we are united to Christ by faith. You know what John says in 1 John 5, verse, verse 4 especially, and verse 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. He that is born of God, he that is a child of God, he that has been regenerated, he that is sanctified. He overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. By faith we are united to Christ so that we become members of his body. That's not a metaphor. That's not just a figurative expression that we are united to Christ. We are his body. I know it's in a profoundly spiritual sense of the word. I know that. And I know that Paul is right when he says, this is a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and his church. They become one flesh. And the picture is in marriage. It's a reality. We are Christ's body. One of the things that I hope that I, I, I know too, that I will understand better when I am in heaven is this. What does it mean to be literally the body of Christ? The glorified body. What does that mean? It means now, of course, that faith in him makes me his. My comfort is I belong to Jesus. I am his and he is mine. I believe that. But we are his body. And whatever is true of Christ as the head of his church is true of the body.
And so faith in Christ that unites us to Him makes us so members of His body that that faith in Him overcomes the world. Because Christ overcame it. Paul can confidently say, as he does in Romans 8, all things work together for good to those who love God. All things. The devil does. Works for good to those who love God. The world does. Everything does. No matter what it is. Works for good. Because Christ is in his throne in heaven. And that's why Jesus in John 10 emphatically states, no one can take them out of my Father's hand. And then, in the next breath, he says, and it basically means the same thing, no one can take them out of my hand. I and my Father are one. So, safe in Christ, we are in God's hand, and no one can take us out. That's the basis for the victory, the victorious life the believer has in the midst of this world. Now, I want to be a little bit more concrete than that and spell out, if I can, for a moment what that means in certain definite respects with in indefinite instances with respect to our life in the world. It means first of all of course that we have Christ as our intercessor in heaven. There's a beautiful passage in Hebrews 4 For we have not to the high priest, that's Christ. I'm reading verses 15 and 16. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. We have a sympathetic, that's the idea of the Greek here. We have a sympathetic high priest who's filled with sympathy for his church. He knows what we're going through. He knows the difficulties of the battle. He knows the struggles with sin. He went through it. He was tempted in all points as we are, though he did not sin. He knows what temptation is like. He knows the tug of it. He knows the appeal of it. He knows how difficult it is to resist it. He's a sympathetic high priest and he looks down on us and he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so says the apostle to the Hebrews, because we have one in heaven who is our intercessor, let us therefore come boldly 
unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, that first of all, that is mercy in the forgiveness of our sins, and find grace to help in time of need. That's, first of all, the fruit in this life. What a wonderful thing it is to have our Lord, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, one who is sympathetic with us. He understands us. He understands our weaknesses. He understands how difficult it is for us to walk a holy life. He understands how awful temptation is. You may bring everything that lies in your heart to him. Everything. You may bring it to him because he understands. And because he is the way to God, where we will obtain mercy and grace to help in times of need. I remember once hearing a, a sermon in First Church by Reverend Uxman on that text, and he began his sermon this way. He said, Beloved, this is such a beautiful text and contains such a wonderful truth that maybe it's better if we just read it together four or five times and go home. I can't improve on anything the text says. I can't expound it any more fully than the text does itself. And then he went on to preach a marvelous sermon on our sympathetic high priest. That's encouragement to us. When you are in the throes of temptation and when sin besets you and you want someone to talk to, someone to help you, someone to whom to pour out your heart, someone to tell him of the difficulties of the struggle, we have a high priest who understands, who knows what we're going through, who isn't cold and indifferent, who turns his back to us in disgust and berates us for our wickedness. No, no. There we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. The first benefit, the first not benefit so much as the reality of victory in this world is the forgiveness of sins. We have the forgiveness of sins. We obtain mercy when we come to Christ. Mercy that forgives and pardons all our sins. There are times, and I think you can probably all identify with that, there are times when I've had a very bad week, as we all do. I mean bad from the point of view of the struggle against sin. And it was so difficult that Sunday morning when it dawns makes me wonder in my heart, 
Why are you going to church? You're not worthy to come to God. You've made such a mess of things. You've done so many things contrary to the will of God. You've been so disobedient. What makes you think that God will receive you if you come to church and you worship and you call upon his name? Won't he say to you, I told you a hundred times not to do that, and every time you do it again. And like an angry parent may say to his child, I'll tell you once more, and that's it. And I slump down in my seat, and I say, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be here. And then the congregation arises, and it's all so right. It's also as it ought to be. Because this is the way the services begin, as I have learned them all my life long. The minister gets up and in the name of Christ and of God says, Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I listen. And I hear that. And that's Christ speaking. He's speaking to me. Beloved, beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we respond as we can't help but do it. Our help is in the name of Jehovah, who made heaven and earth. And then the blessing, grace be to you, to us. and mercy, and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, and through the operation of the Holy Spirit. At that point, you know, your heart almost burst. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's all you could say. The week vanishes into the past. It's as if it were no more. The sins are forgiven. I am God's beloved. My sins are taken away in Jesus Christ. That sometimes when we really come to church to worship, the most thrilling moments of the service, especially when we come with burdened souls and hearts filled with anguish because of weak dawn arrived. That's one benefit. That's one victory. Part of our victorious life, that no matter how often we sin against Him, there is forgiveness and pardon. Secondly, I want to remind you of the fact that when we walk in the midst of the world and fall, stumble and lie wounded and bleeding along the road we never give up I don't know if you appreciate that I think you do if you've ever really truly known sin you say to yourself I have committed this sin so often in my thoughts and in my heart. 
It's hopeless. I'm not going to fight it anymore. My justice will give up. It's too much. We never do that. Maybe for the moment you might think that. Then you might say to yourself, nothing ever comes of it. My sin is too much. I'm going to quit fighting. The believer never does that. Every time he falls and stumbles by the power of Christ, he gets up again. And he says, I must go on. That's my calling. Wounded as I may be, there is the balm of Gilead that can heal the wounds. I will press on in my calling. I know that there will be other times, many, when I stumble and fall, but I must go on. And I can go on. And I will go on. By the power of Christ who loves me. The believer never gives up. There is in the third place a kind of a victory even in the struggle with sin. Paul suggests that in Romans 7 and in Galatians 5, 17. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit lusteth against the flesh and these are contrary to each other so that I cannot do the things I would. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. What does that mean? That means, beloved, that when God works the work of sanctification in our hearts, that work of sanctification has such an effect upon our wills and so conquers our wills that in the moments of our sin, we say, we do, I don't want to do this. I hate it, even though we do it. The will is opposed to it. I can't do the things I want to do. I want to serve God. I want to keep his commandments. I want to escape from the shackles of sin. I want to. There's victory in that. The will, the will that hates sin, the will that despises sin, the will that wants us not to sin, the will that wants the good which we do not, is the will sanctified by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, so that that in itself is already victory. I do what I don't want to do. It's the power of a sanctified will and the Spirit who cleanses our will. And as the canons say, who changes our stubborn and rebellious wills in such a way that they become soft and pliable. And that, if I may call it in the moral sense of the word, the primacy of the will is the victory in the midst of all our sin. You do what you don't want to do. Maybe that don't want to do is 
buried somewhere, but it's there. It's there. That's the victorious life. That's the proof of sanctification. That's the victory over the sin of which I am guilty. The victory, the victorious life of the Christian in the life of sanctification is manifested in this. And John, especially in his first epistle, makes a great point of that. That kind of sanctification and the power of it is in this, that we love one another. The power of sin is this, I love myself. And the power of sin is very strong in that respect. I'm always out for myself. I always want to do what's good for me. No matter what is occupying my attention, the question that lingers in my heart is this. What's in it for me? What can I gain from this? The power of sanctification works in the hearts of God's people in such a way that they love one another. I talked a moment ago about falling by the wayside and never giving up. But Paul extends that a little bit in Galatians 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, that's a fellow saint who's on the same path you are, but he falls. He falls. There he lies on the side of the road, unable to get up, wounded, bleeding. If you overtake such a man, you who are spiritual, that is you who at the moment are walking the way you ought to walk on the path to heaven, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. We want that. We want not only ourselves, because we are sanctified, to get to heaven safely. We want our brothers to get there, our children, our wives, our husbands, our fellow saints. We know that all God's people have to be saved or none can be saved. The whole church is saved, or the whole church goes lost. Christ's body is not without an eye when it finally comes to the end of the world, or without a finger. It's perfect, it's complete, because all my fellow saints are brethren in Christ, and because of the power of sanctification, I know, I know, that selfishness is always there, but that power of sanctification nevertheless works in us in such a way that we want our brethren to be saved. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says in chapter 5, so fulfill the law of Christ. When you help a brother, That's a proof of your own sanctification. 
The assurance of sanctification comes in walking in the way of God's commands. But that's a sort of a mysterious thing. When I think about this, I always think of Matthew 25, where Jesus, the final judge, separates the sheep from the goats. And he says to the goats, depart from me. He says that when they ask why, you never visited me when I was in prison. You never gave me a drink when I was thirsty. You never fed me when I was hungry. And immediately they rise. Oh, Lord, we always did it. Whenever you needed us, we did it. And the Lord says, no, you didn't. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But then the sheep enter into the kingdom of my Father. And the sheep say, why? And the Lord says, you visited me in prison. You fed the hungry. You gave a drink to the thirsty. What do the people of God say at that point? Lord, we never did. I can't remember that we ever did. The Lord says, insomuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. But the point of the Lord is this. It was a kind of, I'm not sure how to put this, it was a kind of a thoughtless care of the brother. If your brother needs you, and you help him, then you don't say to yourself, oh, now I'm doing my good work for the day, as the Boy Scouts do. Oh, this is fine of me. This is really a wonderful deed I have performed. The believer doesn't do that. There is something totally unconscious about those deeds of which the Lord approves. And that our proof of sanctification. <coughs> Just as soon as I say after visiting someone in the hospital, now I've done a good work, it's not good anymore. That's the end of it. But if I walk in obedience to Christ and do what I do in humble service of Christ and in thankful privilege for his wonderful gift. Then I do it without any thought of myself, without any thought of my good work. It's Christ who works in us and who works so that we work out of love for him. Another proof of the victory of sanctification, well, I don't know if that's proof so much for it, but it has something to say about sanctification and about our calling. I refer to Psalm 19, a psalm which my colleague read this morning. That's a marvelous song. 
psalmist first talks about the law of God in creation. And that the law of God in creation is of such a kind that the creation speaks of Christ. The sun rises as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a young man to run a race. That's Christ, of course. Talks about the law of creation, the law that God put in the creation and by means of which he operates the creation. And then suddenly he switches to the moral law without missing a beat. But that's because both are basically the same thing. And so he says, by means of the law of God, he who walks in that law has the gospel. Listen, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That's the gospel. But that's the law of God as it is written by the finger of Christ's spirit upon the tablets of our heart. And then the apostle makes an interesting distinction. He says in the life, in him, he's speaking personally here, not the apostle, the poet. He's speaking personally here and he says there are a lot of sins in my life that I can call secret sins. The secret sins I do not know. The secret sins I do not give a thought to that are always present. Do I love the Lord my God with my first waking moment in the morning? Do I love the Lord my God and get dressed? Do I love the Lord my God when I sit down for breakfast? Is my eating breakfast an expression of my love for God? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and mind and soul and strength. How often do we do something consciously in the love of God? Those are all secret sins that arise because of our sinful nature. The devil doesn't have to prompt us so much to commit these sins. They're there. Our natures are corrupt. We don't even know them. We don't know, Jeremiah says, what lies in our hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Those are the secret sins. And then, after talking about that, who can understand these errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. He prays. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. They're different. They're not secret. Presumptuous sins are those sins that I commit. And they are very frequent. And I know our sins. I know God forbids them. I want to do it anyway. And I'm going to do it anyway. Those are presumptuous sins. In the full awareness of, of the fact that I'm sinning against God, in the full awareness of the fact that his law forbids it, I do it knowing it's wrong. I do it, I do it, though it spells condemnation. I do it deliberately, 
consciously. And so the psalmist prays, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Because, says the psalmist, if I don't, they will have dominion over me. That's true. They will make you your slave if you continue in a presumptuous sin. Drinking too much. Drink becomes your master. Lying. A lie becomes your master. So it is with any sin. Keep thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Now, beloved, the psalmist prays that, and he prays that in the full faith that it will be answered. And there is something very practical for you and me as we walk our life of sanctification. God will forgive our secret sins. He will cleanse us from them too. But we are called not to commit presumptuous sins. And you may talk about fact that our lives here in the world are always wicked and depraved, but the sanctifying power of God in our lives can indeed keep presumptuous sins from having dominion over us. And even keep us from committing Maybe not altogether, at least if it's altogether, I haven't attained that yet. But presumptuous sins in the life of a child of God can indeed be resisted by the power of sanctification. All of this is possible, you understand, as I said, by faith in Christ. We, if we walk in the consciousness of our dependence upon Christ, if we walk in the consciousness of Him who rules over us every moment, if we walk in the consciousness that we belong to Christ and that we represent His cause in the world, and cling to him by faith. We never attain perfection. Our best works are still corrupted and polluted with sin. But nevertheless, there is victory over presumptuous sins. We must face sin that way. We must face sin in, these, in, in prayer. You'll ever be from presumptuous sins. Keep thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let him not have the winning over me. Cleanse me from my secret sins. But keep me from presumptuous sins. 
Do you think the Lord won't hear that prayer? He will. He never turns one of his children away at heaven's door. He never does. He never slams the door in their face. When we rely on Christ and walk in the confidence of his power over sin, we have the victory. And the result of that victory is, first of all, in this life, a joy that is ours, truly. It doesn't last, but it's there. A joy of triumph, a song of triumph and praise. A joy that passes all earthly pleasures. I am the Lord's. And in this world of sin, and with my own sinful flesh, I'm the victor. I'm the victor. The victory is mine in this life, because I walk in the consciousness that I am Christ, and that he is mine. And so, though the battle continues to the very end, and we're fully aware of the fact that that total victory is not ours on this side of the grave, nevertheless, we keep our eyes on the end of the journey. And there shines the light of our eternal destination, the glory of the heavens, where Christ himself is, so that way we press our steps. We do, stumbling, falling, fleeing to the cross. We press our steps homeward. We do. And the older we become, I'm sure, the more precious that destination does not seem to be. It does not seem. It seems to me. I'm not going to sin anymore. I won't be able to sin anymore. There won't be any temptation. There won't be any struggle. There won't be any sorrow. Because I'll be as Christ is, perfect and without sin. That's the victory. And we know it's ours. We don't stumble along the pathway of this life wondering, in doubt, worrying, wishing that I had some assurance. Or as the old Dutch used to express it, Ach, macht it nos, nacht is Oh, I wish it would happen. I wish God would do some wonderful thing that I could be assured of. That's wicked. If anyone doubts his salvation, he sins. He does. He must go to the cross. He may not doubt. It's wicked to do that. And when you kneel at the cross to confess your sins, you must say, Lord, forgive my sins of doubting thy goodness, of doubting thy mercy, of doubting thy grace, of doubting that I am thine. Forgive. That's a sin too dreadful to contemplate. That's the victory, too. The victorious life. 
And the joy of that eternal destination fills the soul of the child of God with singing and gladness and joy. I'm on my way to glory. Nothing can keep me from it. Not even myself can keep me from the glory that awaits me. For my Savior is in heaven. And he will not rest until all his children are with him. And they will be forever and ever. That's the victory of the Christian. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.